The Founding Fathers, American Revolution, our Constitution, our History, America. Thanks so much for tuning in as we discuss the people, places, events, and battles that turned 13 separate colonies into the greatest nation on earth, the United States. Welcome back, patriots. I am your host, Ron Kern, and I am so glad that you're here. First off, I want to thank you for allowing me to share my passion for the revolution and our country's history with you. And thanks for tuning in. This is episode 28. My last episode was so much fun. I had the uh, blessing of interviewing Michael Troy, who is an expert on the revolution, and that interview also became our very first video for our newly launched YouTube channel. Although it will take some time, one thing that will be on the YouTube channel is all episodes of this podcast. I think that most listen probably via podcast, but YouTube will allow me to do a little bit more in addition. For instance, I have some pretty fun things planned for the channel, such as a quick five or 10 minute video about a particular topic and also sharing some of my videos that I've taken while at a revolutionary landmark such as Yorktown. Now, if there's something you would like to see or have an idea for the show's new channel, I would love to hear from you. So just shoot me an email at patriotpowerpodcast at gmail.com. And also make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss anything. And of course, a link to our YouTube channel will be put in the show notes. Before I begin, some of you may have noticed that the website's main page and the photo or logo for our podcast has indeed changed. This was done on purpose as I feel it better showcases what the show is about and I hope that you like the new look as much as I do. Truth be told, this photo will be the cover of the book that I'm currently working on called Taking Up Arms, Three Brothers, One Cause. This is my first historical fiction set in the Revolutionary War era in Pennsylvania. The story is going to highlight three brothers who fought side by side to stay alive, fought for each other, and soon the United States. The story is about my fifth great-grandfather, Peter Kern, and his two brothers, my great-uncles, Jacob and Leonard Kern. My goal is to have it available in early next year. We've had a couple bonus episodes since our last Timeline episode. One was diving into the Declaration of Independence, which was done on July 4th. And I actually had my wife, Lisa, join me, and it was a lot of fun, and we actually received quite a bit of great positive feedback on it. And then, of course, the Michael Troy interview, which has blown up. So this episode will get us back on track of the chronological timeline of the war. Our last timeline episode was episode 25, where the Battle of Monotomy the Second Continental Congress, and George Washington taking the helm of the army were all discussed. These were very important and big events, so if you haven't listened to that show yet, please do, as that will tee it up pretty nicely for this one. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the Siege of Boston, Fort Ticonderoga, Bunker Hill, and the Olive Branch Petition. 
With so many important and interesting things to cover, and I have a lot to cover, let's go ahead and get started. The siege of Boston was an 11-month period from April 19, 1775 to March 17, 1776, and that was when American militiamen effectively contained British troops within Boston. The American forces, led now by General George Washington, surrounded the city of Boston where the British army was based out of and where several hundred had just marched from the Bloody Road. The Bloody Road uh, was discussed back in episode 25. So the British army, who was at the time under the command of General Thomas Gage, was caught off guard by the resistance by the Americans and soon found themselves trapped in Boston. The Americans, on the other hand, were able to control the surrounding countryside and prevent the British from receiving supplies, food, or reinforcements by land. Now, the Siege of Boston was not just a military confrontation, but it was a real battle of wills between two sides with two different ideas about what the future of American colonies was going to be like. The Americans obviously wanted independence, while the British sought to maintain their control over the colonies. There were several important and key events that took place during this 11-month siege, including the Battle of Bunker Hill, the Olive Branch Petition, Henry Knox obtaining cannons and artillery from Fort Ticonderoga, the start of the United States Navy, and, of course, Dorchester Heights. A few of these are just too rich to be included in this show, so I'm going to break them down into separate episodes as they each rightfully deserve. There are many excellent books that talk about the Battle of Bunker Hill, and I'll list all of those in the show notes for you. Speaking of show notes... Have you had a minute to visit those yet? For every single episode, I provide a page of show notes on my website, which is patriotpowerpodcast.com, and I have recommended reading, videos, photos, links, and more that relate to each show's topic. The books I recommend, all you have to do is click and order if you want a copy. And I really hope that you're taking advantage of the show notes as it's organized, it's tidy, and it's absolutely jammed full of resources for you. And to be honest, it's pretty darn time consuming for each show, but I want to provide as much as I can for you. And if you haven't visited the show notes, please do so. For Bunker Hill, I'm going to paint an overall picture of the battle and highlight some of the key events and the people that were involved. So the Continental Congress rushed back to Philadelphia to address the escalating conflict as militia units from various parts of New England all converged in Massachusetts to support their fellow countrymen. These militias were confident in their ability to challenge the British Army, fueled by a revolutionary fervor and determination demonstrated in the recent clashes at Lexington and Concord. They weren't overconfident, but they did possess a spirit that equaled or surpassed that of hundreds of British regular soldiers. Among them, a very notable figure emerged from Connecticut, and his name was Benedict Arnold. While I won't delve deeply into his life in this episode, you can anticipate a future bonus episode dedicated exclusively to him. For him and his amazing life, it will take probably several bonus episodes, and 
Even then, I doubt that will be enough. But for now, Benedict Arnold, he presented himself as a very commanding figure when he arrived at the New England camp near Boston, and he got there shortly after Lexington and Concord. His appearance, like George Washington, sitting on top of a beautiful, large, fine horse, it, it left a lasting impression. Arnold was born into a life of privilege, although it was short-lived. His family fortune was squandered by his father, who unfortunately became an alcoholic, and eventually he died from that. But it forced Arnold to apprentice as an apothecary at the young age of 13. Now, for those of you that may not know, an apothecary is the title of the actual building as well as the person that's behind the counter. And what they did, it's kind of like a drugstore today. Um, although back then they made and sold medicine, herbs, and drugs. So he would actually serve as both the doctor and pharmacist. Can you imagine doing that at 13? At 15, he did run away to join the Connecticut militia during the French and Indian War, which was a pretty audacious decision for somebody that young. And when I do a bonus episode on Benedict Arnold, you're going to find out just how impressive he was in that war as he is in this war. So after the French and Indian War, Arnold overcame his modest circumstances and actually rebuilt and achieved wealth and success in business. However, his deep-seated resentment and contempt for the British rule had transformed him into a militant patriot. Being the confident and bold person that Benedict Arnold was, he was able to persuade the Massachusetts Provincial Congress to entrust him with a mission that would bring personal glory to him and much-needed ammunition to the rebel cause, the capture of the heavily guarded British garrison at Fort Ticonderoga, which is in the upper reaches of New York. As Arnold embarked on his quest to seize that fort, he learned that another soon-to-be-famous figure shared the exact same goal. Ethan Allen, a rugged frontiersman from Connecticut with a penchant for hard living, was recruited by Connecticut's Congress to muster his personal militia for a similar mission to Fort Ticonderoga. These fighters, known as the Green Mountain Boys, had been engaged in their own war of independence against New York settlers. And to simplify, these guys were a bunch of rowdy men. Serving as their colonel commandant, Ethan Allen rallied about 2,000 armed frontiersmen from what is now Vermont. They had spent five years defending their farms and new territory against the encroaching New Yorkers. So both Arnold and Allen were now heading toward Fort Ticonderoga with a common objective. And though they were following separate paths, each believed that they had the right or necessary authorization. And I guess they did, but it was from two different sources. This is where a phone call would have really eliminated a bunch of issues. But Arnold made his way toward the fort all alone, and his goal was to uh, head through the forest. And as he came across men, he was going to do his recruiting himself and add men to his uh, army, which he had none initially. So meanwhile, Ethan Allen and his group 
well, they already had a group and they had already begun preparations for the assault. Now, their paths, that being Ethan Allen and, and the Green Mountain Boys and Benedict Arnold, they converged about 30 miles from their intended target. So when they met, Arnold hopped off his horse, presented Allen with his Massachusetts orders, and assumed that he would be taking command of the entire army, or the entire militia. Arnold was very used to being in charge, getting his way, and to be honest, he was very, very good at that. However, Allen, always full of himself as usual, scoffed at Arnold's presumption. These two guys were undeniably self-assured, confident, and they had very strong personalities, both driven by a desire for personal glory. The Green Mountain Boys under Allen displayed unwavering loyalty to him, a fact that Benedict Arnold figured that out pretty quick. When he tried to take control of the attack, the Green Mountain Boys laid down their weapons and basically said, you know what, we're not going to move or fight unless it's under Ethan Allen. Reluctantly, Arnold acquiesced to carry out the raid alongside these men, but found himself relegated to a subordinate role, a situation that proved to be a humbling confrontation. So in the early hours before dawn on May 10th, 1776, a group comprising of 83 Green Mountain Boys and 50 Massachusetts militia members stealthily approached the British stronghold. The 50 slumbering redcoats within the fort had been undisturbed in this wilderness outpost for so long that they were entirely unprepared for the impending assault. They were so unprepared that the confrontation concluded within minutes, and the British soldiers surrendered without putting up one iota of resistance. The rebels now possessed the fort's very valuable artillery stores, and their occupation had been nearly effortless for such a significant and crucial fortress. However, what transpired afterward left Arnold sickened. Ethan Allen's men discovered 90 gallons of rum, leading to a three-day drinking binge and pretty much the destruction of the fort. Arnold was left to clean up the mess, and in doing so, he was even shot at by some drunk Green Mountain Boys as he attempted to restore some semblance of order. The gravest affront, though, occurred when Ethan Allen penned a letter to Arnold's superiors in the Massachusetts Congress, boldly claiming complete credit for the entire operation, while omitting any mention of his rival, Benedict Arnold. Now, for Arnold, this wound cut deeper than anything else that could have happened. Public recognition held great importance for an officer's honor, and being intentionally omitted, despite his significant contribution, was, well, it was a giant slap in the face and considered exceedingly disrespectful. This was just one instance among many where Arnold's valor, leadership, and efforts went unnoticed. To make it even worse, many of these times he was left out intentionally. And like Ethan Allen, so would Horatio Gates at the Battle of Saratoga do the same exact thing, but let's not jump ahead too far in this timeline. So ultimately, 
These repeated instances of being denied recognition played a pivotal role in his decision to defect and join the other side, forever marking him and his name being synonymous with traitor. A somber turn of events that I think is one of the most unfortunate stories of the revolution. Benedict Arnold was an outstanding soldier. In fact, I don't think there was anybody better. He demonstrated amazing valor, bravery, honor, leadership, but but he was very uh, vocal and quite arrogant a lot of the times. And I think people he he rubbed he rubbed people the wrong way. And uh, although it's wrong, uh, I can see why they left him out of uh, the writings or the communications. But it was one hundred percent wrong. And I'll go into this when I do a bonus episode on him. But as a field commander that is willing to get into battle, there is no other general on the Continental Army side that was better than Benedict Arnold. Period. Concerned about the nation's food supply? Imagine store shelves running low or empty. Now ask yourself, how well prepared are you and your family? Back 40 Farms has the answer with a wide variety of organically grown freeze-dried food. Many of their products are grown right on their farm, and if not, they're sourced from certified organic farms. With a remarkable 20-plus year shelf life, each item is packaged in Mylar bags, complete with oxygen absorbers, and hermetically heat-sealed. Whether you crave fruits, veggies, soup starters, cheese, or their bestseller, organic chicken eggs, they have something for everyone. Their freeze-dried chicken eggs have been featured on The Today Show, NPR, and many other media outlets. Back 40 Farms is the perfect solution to ensure you have quality food ready for literally decades. Unlike most companies, preservatives are never added. As a veteran-owned and family-run farm, they have shipped their products to every state in the country. You can add to your emergency food supply and at the same time support a small farm that was voted number one farm to freeze-dry. Visit their website now at www.bffidaho.com and stock up to savor the wholesome, nutritious, and delicious food that will be immediately shipped to your doorstep. A link to their country store can be found in the show notes and podcast description for this show. The initial insult to his honor marked the beginning of a series of affronts that would haunt Benedict Arnold throughout the entire duration of the war, ultimately leading him down a bad path, uh, a path to infamy. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, the members of the Continental Congress reconvened at the Pennsylvania State House, a building later renowned as, you guys know it, Independence Hall, that's right. They received the news of Fort Ticonderoga's capture with a complex mix of emotions. Up until that point, they had abstained from authorizing offensive actions against the British in the hopes of maybe, you know, achieving peace. But with the sudden capture of this fort, it caught the Continental Congress largely unprepared and unenthusiastic as it was not their desired course of action. However, circumstances had now forced their hand, compelling them to at least acknowledge that a military response was pretty much inevitable, and they had to hastily formulate a plan of action. So the time had come for the 13 colonies to transform into a united military force alongside their political unity. To finance and equip an army, they issued currency 
based on future tax collections from the colonies. John Adams passionately advocated for the immediate adoption of this army as the Continental Army, taking on the responsibility for its pay, subsistence, clothing, armor, and munitions. He also stressed the need to appoint a very capable commander to lead this new army. Although I discussed this before, I believe it bears repeating with the exact quotes for added impact. The last time I mentioned George Washington becoming the general of the Continental Army, um, it was more of a kind of an overview. But I think you'll appreciate knowing what was said and how people reacted to it. So Adams ardently pushed for the swift appointment of a commander to lead this emerging army. John Hancock, who was a good friend of Adams, was also self-assured and affluent. In fact, I think he was one of the one of, if not the richest people in all the colonies. He recently was elected as president of Congress, and he assumed that he would soon be offered this significant position. Adams surprised him with the following statement, quote, And that is a gentleman among us and very well known to all of us. A gentleman whose skill and experience as an officer, whose independent fortune, great talents, and excellent universal character would command the approbation of all the colonies better than any other person in the Union. That is, the gentleman from Virginia. Hancock was more than shocked as Adams passed him over for a Virginia planner, George Washington. In my previous episode, I said he likely looked like a kid who, after yearning for an ice cream cone on a hot summer day, drops it in the dirt. I mean, his mouth was, he was just flabbergasted. And he really could not believe that this was happening to him. But the Continental Congress sought a national and unified army, not one tied solely to Massachusetts or the New England area. They all believed that selecting a commander-in-chief from a different colony would help achieve this balance and partly is why they had their preference for George Washington out of Virginia. Standing at an impressive height of 6 foot 2 and weighing 215 pounds, Washington possessed a very commanding presence. Prior to his nomination, he had been a man of few words during the sessions, but his attire spoke volumes about his intentions. Every day he arrived dressed in a military uniform, which was a striking testament to his military experience, and it added a remarkable sense of power to his already imposing figure. When Washington accepted the position, he made a statement that revealed a degree of humility, saying, quote, but lest some unlucky event should happen unfavorable to my reputation, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in the room that I this day declare with the utmost sincerity, I do not think myself equal to the command that I am honored with. Although his words may have seemed somewhat disingenuous, it's pretty clear that he had a very strong desire for that role. Washington was remarkably ambitious, particularly when it came to military matters. And despite some assertions in various podcasts that I've listened to and articles that I've wrote, and even in some books, they, they paint him as a timid and mild-mannered um, gentleman. But 
my extensive research and years of studying Washington has shown me that he was, in fact, one of the most ambitious individuals of this era. He demonstrated time and time again a fierce determination that might not have been immediately apparent to an observer. Understanding that Washington was a man of honor, integrity, dignity, and honesty with an exceptionally formidable presence was crucial. And as I've mentioned previously, when someone consistently appears in a military uniform, it is evident that they have a strong desire for that position. He even wrote his wife Martha after accepting the position, quote, You may believe me when I assure you in the most solemn manner that so far from seeking this appointment, I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it. It's pretty obvious that he wanted the position. Why did he write it? My guess is he knew darn good and well that this letter and all of his writings would be read, kept, and become part of history. And in writing this, it continued with his theme of, quote, not wanting something. Now, Washington had a really good talent for concealing his true intentions, making it uh, making it appear as though he was not really interested in certain roles when in reality, they were his top priorities. And it was a pattern that he adhered to for the rest of his life. It's important to note that being one of the wealthiest individuals in the colonies, that Washington had nothing, zero, to gain and everything to lose by getting involved in any position or capacity of the war. He also said that he did not want a salary for the job. He only asked to be reimbursed for any expenses that he would personally incur while during the war or while holding this position. And newsflash, he incurred a lot of personal expense, just like many, many generals did. I'm not going to go into the backstory of Washington here, as it's as it would take up way too much time, but I will start a George Washington bonus episode series soon, because he is my favorite guy. I mean, my wife and I own a lock of his hair. I have a tattoo bearing his signature on my arm, and to me, he is the most impressive person during the Revolution, and for that matter, perhaps all time. With that said, I've done a lot of research after finishing an amazing book that I completely devoured recently. I do now have a very, very close second, which I'm going to be covering in one of my next few episodes. I'm super excited about sharing who he is with you. He's so important and amazing feats of accomplishment, yet Many people don't even know his name, which is sad. So I'm, I'm jacked about sharing that with you on an upcoming episode. As Washington made preparations to depart from Boston, his mission was daunting. Confronting the formidable might of the world's largest and strongest army. And unbeknownst to him at the time, a significant conflict had already taken place. Famously now known as... The Battle of Bunker Hill. The capture of Fort Ticonderoga by the rebels added immense pressure to the already beleaguered British commander Thomas Gage. It was a grim irony that in the earlier conflict during the French and Indian War, 2,000 British soldiers had lost their lives while seizing Fort Ticonderoga. Now, Gage had lost it to the American forces. 
In London, King George III was incensed by Gage's inability to control the colonists, declaring, quote, and no situation can change my fixed resolution either to bring the colonies to a due obedience or to cast them off. There was no more room for negotiation or legislative efforts. The colonies would either submit to authority or face an unprecedented display of force. Gage was relieved of his duties, deemed too weak and tolerant of the colonists for the task. So, he's gone. What is Britain going to do? To replace him, the British command dispatched their three most distinguished generals, the best and brightest military minds that England had to offer. General Henry Clinton, an American-born officer, he displayed competence in military matters, but he struggled with social interactions, and oftentimes he was very, very awkward. He was kind of an odd guy if he got in a crowd. The second one was John Burgoyne, and he was quite vain and quite ambitious. And lastly, there was General William Howe. Howe was an experienced military leader who had come to respect the British colonials in America while fighting alongside them during the French and Indian War. So, who would be the one out of these three to take charge? Howe is the favorite, but an odd choice to take over the command in America. A political liberal, he opposes the king's policies in the colonies and had once even vowed not to fight against his English countrymen there. He was actually opposed to the war and he really just wanted the Americans to submit to British laws and British taxes. He definitely did not want to come over here and fight the colonists. He really saw both sides. He was just hoping that the colonists would accept everything and pay everything, and uh, he wasn't really up for fighting. So it, an odd choice for sure um, to send somebody over to lead the British army when he wasn't like gung-ho, let's go destroy them. But anyway, these three supporting generals were essentially tasked with replacing Gage, and it evolved into a personal competition among them to determine who would assume the role of commander-in-chief in America. Following the events at Lexington and Concord, the surrounding hills of Boston became occupied by militia forces, effectively laying siege to the city and confining the British and Loyalists within its boundaries. And you have to remember at the time, Boston was an island, almost pretty close to an island. If you can picture in your head what a ping pong paddle looks like, the handle was the Boston neck and it was so narrow on high tide that sometimes the water would actually roll over it. And as we'll discuss in the future, this made it pretty easy to stop or monitor anyone or anything coming or going from Boston. The British even had a checkpoint on the Boston neck and gallows were placed there as a warning or perhaps some intimidation. Now, the British command devised a plan to break free from this rebel stranglehold through a decisive offensive aimed at securing the high ground around Boston, primarily focusing on Bunker Hill. However, the colonial forces had gained a strategic advantage by obtaining intelligence on the British plans through spies. 
regimental commanders from Connecticut and Massachusetts positioned in the hills, they led their troops to fortify Bunker Hill. Subsequently, they decided to move one hill closer to Boston, settling on Breed's Hill, where they entrenched themselves in preparation for an impending British assault. At midnight on June 17th, a force of 1,200 militiamen raced against the clock to seize the high ground before the break of dawn, which would reveal their position to the British forces below. Their objective was to establish control of the advantageous terrain before the enemy could initiate their own move, and as daybreak approached, the slumbering British ships that were in the Boston Harbor they spotted the militia positions and raised the alarm, signifying that the Patriots had preempted the British offensive. The first full-fledged battle of the Revolution had commenced, and while the Redcoats assembled for battle, ships in the harbor attempted to pin down the militia with cannon fire. Under the command of General William Howe, lines of British soldiers, bayonets at the ready, ascended the hill without the cover of terrain, rendering themselves quite vulnerable to the muskets of the militiamen who possessed very accurate marksmanship skills. The British were so confident that they could maintain formation, and despite sustaining casualties, they would instill a fear in the patriots through the display of a professional, disciplined force of regulars, aiming to convey that opposing such an army was sheer madness. Not once, but twice, Howe's troops charged up Breed's Hill, and twice they were repelled by the resolute militia. As in the events at Lexington and Concord, civilians ventured out to witness the battle and the ensuing bloodshed. Although the presence of spectators at a battlefield seems pretty odd and perilous to me, many were there watching and observing because they were concerned as many of their loved ones were engaged in that battle. The rebel barrage continued for three hours until they depleted their ammunition, and despite their advantageous position, the rebels had no alternative but to retreat. On their third attempt, the British forces finally captured the hill, but it came at a very heavy cost, with the ground strewn with the lifeless bodies of red-coated soldiers. The new British commander came to realize what was challenging for those far away in England to comprehend was that this was not merely a rebellion. It was a full-fledged war. And Howe expressed his sentiments, stating, quote, When I look to the consequences of it in the loss of so many brave officers, I do it with horror. The success is too dearly bought. Something crazy about Howe in this battle is, one, he should have been killed several times. He really did show his bravery and, and led the charge up the hill, uh, which wasn't typically the case for the higher-ups or the people in charge, right? They would sit back and monitor and, and decide and give orders and all that, but he, he was right, right in the thick of it. And one reason that he did live was that during the battle, he was actually struck by a musket ball that went through his coat and into his waistcoat pocket. The bullet hit a small ivory box, which ultimately saved his life. What was in the box? 
The box contained a love letter from his mistress. Who would have thought that having an affair and committing adultery and saving a love letter would eventually save you from a bullet and save your life? The price paid by the British for their victory at Breed's Hill, later mistakenly referred to as the Battle of Bunker Hill, had very lasting consequences. Curiously deviating from the original plan to fortify Bunker Hill, they actually ended up fortifying Breed's Hill, a location closer to the water and to the south of Bunker Hill. The outcome was that nearly half of the 2,300 British soldiers, around a thousand of them, were either killed or wounded. On the American side, 271 out of 1,600 men were lost in the battle. While historical records vary in the exact number of casualties on both sides, it's evident that the British suffered significantly higher losses. And although it was technically defined as a victory, whether being the last on the battlefield or witnessing the enemy's retreat, favored the side that remained, right? So if you hold the hill, you're going to be uh, claiming victory for that particular battle. But this engagement demonstrated that the militia, often derogatorily described by the British as mere farmers with pitchforks, posed a greater challenge than initially anticipated. The British persistently underestimated the determination of those who held strong beliefs in liberty and were willing to fight for their cause. Are you a hunter? Do you like to fish, camp, or hike? One common obstacle in doing these activities is transporting and storing food. Well, Back 40 Farms can help you with this. Their organic freeze-dried food is small and super lightweight, making it a snap to have quality, healthy, and delicious food while you are enjoying the outdoors. With our freeze-dried organic chicken eggs, you can put the equivalent of 48 eggs in your backpack and would hardly notice they were there. Small, lightweight, and delicious, they have become super popular for those on the go and being so high in protein, they are perfect for these outdoor activities or for those wanting to increase their emergency food supply. Their eggs have been featured on NPR, The Today Show, and other media outlets, with a wide variety of veggies, soup mixes, fruit, eggs, and more to choose from. Visit their online country store at www.bffidaho.com and have your order in a couple of days. With your purchase, you are getting incredible food that can last decades, and you are supporting a small farm that is veteran-owned and family-run. A link to their website and store is located in the show notes as well as this podcast description. Use coupon code PATRIOT, all caps, to save 15% off your next order. The militia's ability to inflict heavy losses on the British actually bolstered their confidence and their belief that, you know what, maybe we can win this thing, maybe it is attainable. And despite England boasting the world's largest and best trained, most professional army, they pretty much won that battle, even though it's technically a British victory. One of the biggest losses on the American side was that of Dr. Joseph Warren. Joseph was a very popular doctor. In fact, he was the personal doctor for John Adams and his entire family, and he was known by everyone. He saved John Adams' son, future president John Quincy Adams, finger from actually being amputated. Warren was a charming man, he was a very powerful speaker, and a huge supporter of the Patriot cause. 
He was president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. He wrote plenty of essays and authored the Suffolk Resolves, which was a bold declaration of resistance to British authority, and I discussed those resolves in a previous episode. He was made a major general by the middle of June by Congress. Joseph Warren is the one who actually instructed Paul Revere, who he was good friends with, along with William Dawes, to make his famous ride and let everybody know what was going on. And I discuss this ride in great detail and also walk you through an immersive visualization in episode number 23. And so check that out if you haven't already. Warren's death was a gigantic loss, with even British General Gage saying that his death was, quote, worth the death of 500 men. An interesting thing that I found is weeks before the Battle of Bunker Hill, Warren told his mother, quote, Where danger is, dear mother, there must your son be. Now is no time for any of Americans' children to shrink from any hazard. I will set her free or die. When Warren initially showed up at Bunker Hill, he sought out General Israel Putnam and asked him where the heaviest fighting would be. Now, Warren insisted on fighting as a private because he had no prior military experience. So that kind of tells you uh, a lot about his character right there. And Warren was in the thick of the battle until the retreat started due to running out of ammunition. Warren stayed behind, allowing the rest of the militia to retreat when a British officer recognized him. And sadly, this officer was a good shot. Um, put a bullet in Warren's head, and it killed him instantly. Military historian Ethan Raffius wrote, quote, No man, with the possible exception of Samuel Adams, did so much to bring about the rise of a movement powerful enough to lead the people of Massachusetts to revolution. I have a painting of Warren in the show notes, as well as a very famous painting by Trumbull called The Death of General Warren, at the Battle of Bunker Hill. In the days following the battle, as Congress began to establish a Continental Army, the delegates made a final attempt at reconciliation with Britain. They dispatched what they termed the Olive Branch Petition to King George III, respectfully requesting autonomy for the North American colonies within the British Empire. However, given the time it took for communications to cross the Atlantic, usually about two months, too much time would pass before they even received a response. I have a link in the show notes that will take you to the actual Olive Branch petition, but it also shows you the text. And it's it's interesting to read. I, I was going to read it here, but it's far too long. So a link will be there for you if you are interested. The Olive Branch petition was quickly dismissed, and uh, some some scholars and some research that I found says that he actually refused to even read it. Meanwhile, George Washington could not afford to wait for diplomacy. He recognized that he held the key to either liberty or death. And upon hearing of the courageous defense of Boston's Bunker Hill, he drafted a new will and started out on a journey to meet his destiny. Despite any personal trepidations that he might have had, the people he encountered on his way to Boston held no such doubts about the man tasked with their defense. 
Abigail Adams aptly captured the sentiment when she remarked, quote, The appointment gives universal satisfaction. I was struck with General Washington. Dignity and ease combined with a soldier's demeanor are harmoniously blended in him. Upon his arrival in Cambridge, Massachusetts, General George Washington was met with a disheartening revelation. Despite the valiant defense of Breed's Hill, or Bunker's Hill, the troops he now was tasked with commanding fell short of even his most pessimistic expectations. The sheer enormity of his mission was nothing short of staggering. While it is commonly referred to as an army, the men stationed around Boston appeared anything but. They were unkempt, disorderly, a lot of the times they were inebriated on duty, and lacked basic fundamental musket handling skills. Uh, discipline, if it could be called that, was not even present, and Washington faced a very big challenge ahead. These soldiers exhibited a complete lack of hygiene, structure, or organization, and the notion that this was the force entrusted with defending against the mighty British Empire was pretty much unbelievable. And Washington did not mince words or, you know, paint, paint a, a pretty picture when he expressed his disdain for the state of his new command. He wrote, quote, A dirty mercenary spirit pervades the whole. Had I foreseen what I now have, no earthly consideration would have induced me to accept this command. Washington had to start from the ground up, personally overseeing even the most basic administrative tasks, teaching junior officers how to compile reports, how to count troops, how to get supplies, acquire tools, establish latrines, properly handling meat, and, and conduct burials became his immediate priorities. These were tasks that Astonishingly, he had to deal with, and it took up a lot of his time, as you can imagine. And the magnitude of the undertaking before him was immense, requiring a lot of energy to transform this ragtag army into a disciplined fighting force. One thing became abundantly clear. Washington was not prepared to tolerate disorder. He quickly and swiftly implemented stringent measures to restore order among the ranks. Disobeying orders meant that you're going to get 30 lashes on your back. And expressing disrespect resulted in being disarmed, placed in a cart with a noose around your neck, and drummed out of the army. A ritual that, while humiliating, was preferable to hanging from a tree. It's important to remember that this new army was a patchwork of diverse militias hailing from different colonies, and each colony was accustomed to its own command structure, its own methods, its own history, and establishing a unified culture posed yet another challenge. With various styles of combat, tradition, cultures, and backgrounds, Washington was acutely aware of the rivalries and friction within his own ranks. Despite coming together for the first time to form an army, the deep-rooted affiliations to their respective colony persisted. Virginians proudly said, you know, my country is Virginia, while those militiamen from Connecticut declared, my country is Connecticut. And these colonies had unique identities and histories, 
making the task of forging a common bond a daunting one for Washington. So as you can see, the amount of training and educating and sense of duty and responsibility and organization, uh, I, I just can't imagine. I mean, the what I wish I knew what was going through his head. Obviously, we know he was not happy with it from what he wrote. But everything I just relayed to you, try to imagine that you were tasked with all of that. And let's let's go ahead and add some more issues. I mean, one of the most pressing challenges uh, that Washington was facing was they didn't have very much ammunition or gunpowder. And when he received news that each militia member had nine rounds of gunpowder, he, he couldn't believe it. So basically every person in his army had nine shots to use, and that was not going to get you very far. So, so advertisements in colonial newspapers desperately implored local gun makers to ramp up production, but the response was disappointingly lackluster. And I don't know why, other than some people didn't want to get involved, but I pulled up uh, some newspaper ads uh, asking for ammunition, and a lot of them were pretty convincing. But Nonetheless, it didn't convince them back then because they didn't get very much um, ammunition from those ads. And, you know, perhaps no commander in history had confronted such a multitude of obstacles in assembling a fighting force. And even if, and that's a big if, Washington managed to succeed, there was an ominous cloud of uncertainty hanging over the entire effort. The majority of the soldiers had enlisted for just one year, and their contracts were set to expire in either November or December. This, this pretty much guaranteed a diminishing army. As soon as they became even remotely proficient and trained, they would return home, only to be replaced by new recruits, and he'd have to start over the whole process again. So against these odds, he had little time to mold this undisciplined, ill-prepared, and undersupplied army into a force that would soon confront the mightiest military in the world. Easy task? <laughs> uh, I can't even imagine um, what he had to go through there. At this point, General Thomas Gage found himself commanding only 7,000 troops surrounded by Washington's force of 16,000. His mood was bleak as he lamented, quote, The losses we have sustained are more than we can bear. Small armies can ill afford such losses. The rebels' numbers are vast. So many hands have joined them. I wish this cursed place were reduced to ashes. And as I mentioned before, they replaced him. So this was probably um, not helping his case after uh, he wrote that. And without any fanfare or honor, he was relieved of his command. And he uh, actually went back to England in disgrace and uh, wasn't involved much with anything after that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Going back a little bit to the uh, Olive Branch petition, King George um, said, quote, It has now become prudent to swiftly end these disturbances with decisive action. And the king was trying to solve a political problem with military action. And you would think that everybody was right behind the king, but there was actual um, opposition to him by many people, and they did not want to come over here and go to war. Nevertheless, the king prevailed, so when parliament voted, the path of war was chosen, and orders were issued to send thousands and thousands of troops uh, to suppress the escalating American Revolution. To add to Washington's troubles, with the year's end came the expiration of many enlistments, like I said before, and short-term soldiers were also planning on leaving in droves. And now Congress is pushing him to let go some of his most loyal soldiers, and that being African-Americans. And from the very beginning, there were free Northern blacks that had been serving the Patriot cause with similar concerns as their white compatriots. But recruiting black soldiers, getting new ones, Washington had, a tr- had trouble with that because the Continental Congress had trouble with that. Now, southern states were adamantly opposed to making soldiers out of them, and Washington is no different from any other southern planner regarding blacks, and as such, he banned the recruitment of more. Washington said, quote, The rights of mankind and the freedom of America will have numbers sufficient to support them without resorting to such wretched assistance. Now, this is a pretty firm stance and considered harsh by today's standards. In fact, I think it would be considered harsh back then, but probably not. I will repeat this a thousand times, though. You cannot compare today with previous history because each era is a unique tapestry that's woven from different threads of time, culture, technology, and circumstances. It's literally trying to compare apples to oranges. And if you do that, which many people do, it's unwise, unfair, and what it does is it creates comparisons and judgments about a situation or person that is not very accurate. Now, I've been asked... How can you like George Washington so much? You know, he was a white, rich guy who owned slaves. Now, I personally used to get into a large debate about this, but it's not even worth my time speaking with those kind of people, mostly because they don't have actual knowledge and information of the revolutionary history. So I don't waste my time with that. So I do say, yes, he was white. Uh, which I guess today is considered a bad thing. Um, I despise people that go after one particular race. I think people um, should be judged on their actions. Yes, he was rich. And I say to that, don't be jealous. Just know that he had property making him rich. But literally, he, he was cash poor, like many people. Thomas Jefferson was cash poor. Um, Washington was cash poor. And lastly, you could not just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think slavery is a bad thing. I'm going to free all of my slaves today. Right? I've, I've had that. Why didn't they just free all their slaves? Well, for one, it was not legal to do so. And furthermore, with very little skills, 
no money or education, what do you think would happen to those people if they were all freed at once? Now, it's obviously a difficult and complex topic and one that wouldn't be solved until the Civil War. And looking at today's society, it probably isn't, can't be considered completely solved. I'll leave it at this. Washington felt that he had enough manpower without recruiting slaves, so he stopped that primarily because Congress didn't want it. And you're going to see time and time again that even when it was more difficult on Washington and his men, he always, always listened to and did what Congress demanded. Washington and Congress's decision to reject black soldiers played perfectly into the enemy's hands. The royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, issues a proclamation that welcomes blacks to the British side and says, I do hereby declare all indentured servants, Negroes, or others that are able and willing to bear arms free, they joining His Majesty's troops as soon as may be. The Dunmore Proclamation, it wreaked havoc throughout Virginia. Thousands of slaves fleed their masters for this chance of freedom. And if you have the opportunity to join a, a side promising you freedom and a much better situation that you're currently in, I think you'd be pretty uh, pretty um, uh, silly not to take that promise seriously. And, and it was risky, though. Uh, if you were caught escaping, you would be severely punished or even sometimes killed. But for many, the risk was worth the possible reward. Thomas Jefferson estimates that in Virginia alone, 30,000 slaves escaped their owners and became British soldiers. So for the British, it was perfect, right? Not only were they draining the colonial economy by depriving it of the slave labor, they had also bolstered their military ranks. However, it's essential to recognize that many of the promises of freedom and financial reward made to enslaved individuals remained hollow and unfulfilled. So before jumping to applaud the British for their purported moral high ground, it's evident that their actions were driven more by strategic considerations and political maneuvering than a genuine concern for the freedom and well-being of black people. In reflecting on the dire circumstances, Washington candidly conveyed his sentiments, writing, quote, Our treasury is now empty, our powder magazines bare, our stores lack arms, and we are without a brigadier, engineers, or couriers. When the call comes to take the field, we won't even have tents to shelter us. I've often pondered how much happier I might have been had I shouldered my musket and joined the ranks or retired to the wilderness to live in a wigwam rather than accepting a command under these trying conditions. So it was pretty bleak. And the fact that I get a quote Washington saying the word wigwam, uh, that's just, <laughs> that's just cool. So it seemed that all hope was lost before it had even begun until an unexpected idea from a former bookseller emerged, poised to change everything. And at this juncture, I think it's a perfect place to stop, as I believe now you have a vivid image of Boston's landscape, an understanding of the impact and what happened at the Battle of Bunker Hill, on both opposing forces, and a clear sense of the daunting predicament that George Washington has now found himself in. 
The next few Timeline episodes are going to be packed full of unbelievable accomplishments and amazing people, so subscribe to my podcast so you're notified when new episodes are released. I also want to let you guys know, if you have a company or a business and you would like me to read an ad uh, online for you, uh, we can do that. Our audience has really been expanding at a pretty fast clip, and so thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you guys and gals that are listening, uh, to all of the homeschool um, groups around the country that are utilizing this podcast as part of their curriculum, and uh, for those of you who have taken uh, the minute that it takes to give this show a review, it's really working, and I really, really appreciate it, but I'm willing to... um, read an ad of your company or service uh, if it's appropriate. So you can email me at patriotpowerpodcast at gmail.com. But enough about that. We have now reached the part of the show called Lesser Known, Fun, or Interesting Facts. So here we go. The Battle of Bunker Hill is often misnamed as most of the fighting actually took place on Breed's Hill, which was closer to the shoreline and more strategically important than Bunker Hill. The American rebels constructed their fortification on Breed's Hill overnight. They worked quietly using shovels, pickaxes, and even their bare hands to avoid detection by the British. A famous quote that came out of this battle is, Don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. This famous order, which was attributed to American Colonel William Prescott, urged his men to conserve their limited ammunition until the enemy was very close. It actually became a symbol of American resolve. This was an offshoot of what was actually said, but it definitely flows better than the original. The Americans indeed suffered from a severe shortage of ammunition during the battle. They were forced to conserve their rounds and even resorted to throwing rocks and sticks when they were desperate. There were instances of friendly fire during the battle, as the chaotic fighting and the smoke really made it difficult for both sides to distinguish friend from foe. So, sadly, Americans killed Americans by accident, and the British killed some of their own as well. Despite their eventual, quote, victory, many British officers deeply regretted the high casualties that they suffered at Bunker Hill. General Henry Clinton, in particular, considered it a very hollow triumph. The British suffered approximately 1,000 casualties in the battle, which was, as you remember, half, almost half of their entire uh, army, while the Americans had around 275. This high cost led some to consider the British victory a pyrrhic one, where the winner's losses outweighed the benefits of a victory. After the battle, the British abandoned the Charlestown Peninsula and the American forces retreated. However, the strategic importance of the hill was recognized and it was never again fortified by either side during the war. The Bunker Hill Monument is a 221-foot tall obelisk and it was built to commemorate the battle and was completed in 1843. It stands near the site of the battle in Charlestown, Massachusetts, And my wife and I have visited Bunker Hill and climbed to the top of the monument, and it was one heck of a workout. Uh, I have a photo of the monument in the show notes, along with 
other amazing links, videos, book recommendations, and pictures that we took while we were there at Bunker Hill. Thanks for listening and hope that you tune in next time with us here at the Patriot Power Podcast. Make sure that you hit subscribe so you'll get notified when our new episodes are available for you. And we hope that you check out our websites, which include our show notes, links, documents, and more at PatriotPowerPodcast.com or ILoveGeorgeWashington.com. Until next time, hope that you and your family have a blessed week. And remember, be safe and tell a veteran thanks for their service.